1 Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be, and we're going to look to cover six verses tonight, verses 11 to 16. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 16. And Tyler's not feeling well tonight, and the Moffats are up in the Coeur d'Alene area, so a little... Shorthanded on some stuff tonight, but that's all right. Everyone will be just fine. How are you guys doing? You seem so quiet and reserved and maybe bothered. I don't know. Are you okay? <laughs> Liam's not okay. Oh, no. It's because you're wearing a Goonies t-shirt. That's why. <clears throat> well, we're doing well. We took Quinn and Maya to their first doctor appointment that we've taken them to today. And everything's looking pretty good. So, yeah, it's kind of weird because the doctor's asking about medical history and if they've received any type of shots and stuff. And nobody knows. Here they are. Are they? They're breathing and stuff. So that's good. But uh, yeah. So anyway, but they they everything checked out. So Quinn's just a little short for his age. He's going to grow up, everybody thinking that Maya's older than him, because she's almost as tall as him right now. They're only 13 months apart, but anyway. Okay, well, let's read the passage tonight, and then I'll open with a word of prayer, okay? 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. The apostle writes, Beloved, <clears throat> I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And I'll go ahead and read verse 17, though we won't cover it tonight. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Lord, we thank you for this text tonight, just so applicable to us. Please give us great insight, and by your Holy Spirit's power, cause us to make application to uh, the way that we live. We thank you so much for your word that we have it before us in this comfortable building where we can sing praises to you together and gather around your word to learn from you and be encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, verse 11 actually starts what could be called the second half of the letter, and I know it's not divided evenly, but from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, where we ended last week, you have the apostle writing to these believers, giving them a bunch of statements, beautiful, majestic, inspired statements about who they are as Christians, that they are obedient children of God, that they are chosen by God, that they are set apart in the world to believe in Jesus. They, we have all these amazing statements that we've covered through the letter so far about how they have received salvation. And 
even though we did have a section there in chapter 1, starting at verse 16, where Peter's calling them to be holy. Remember where he says, quotes Leviticus, the Lord says, be holy for I am holy. We do have that there. We have, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, more specific instructions on that. And we're going to see all types of relationships addressed. You saw as you were following along as I was reading that, we're tonight going to be talking about our relationship to the government. How are we to be holy as Christians in a culture with a wicked government? Boy, that's an interesting question. And I think that's kind of pertinent, isn't it? (laughs) So, we'll we'll discuss that tonight. But you can run your eyes over if your Bible has titles above uh, certain sections. It's going to talk about wives and husbands. It's going to talk specifically about suffering and how to suffer well. It's going to talk about how we are stewards of God's grace, that we aren't to indulge our flesh in these sins that we used to walk in anymore. It's going to eventually talk about elders and the local church too. So all kinds of relationships and specific applications Peter's going to make through the rest of this letter. All the indicatives that he gave us, indicating who we are through the first chapter and a half, they're now going to be made into imperatives. Because you are this, go do this. That's the transition we're making on this very night in 1 Peter. Hey, we're transitioning into the section where he gets into these commands. And you see that right off the bat in verse 11, where he does call them beloved. But the next words, at least in the ESV here, are I urge you. He's, he's beseeching them. He's imploring them. He's calling them to do something. This is a strong calling. In this section, we're going to see that the Christian life is a constant spiritual battle. The first big idea up there. The Christian life is a constant spiritual battle. How many of you know that? Okay. All right. That's good. You're not learning new stuff uh, yet tonight. That's good. Yeah, because if you're living as a Christian, you know that spiritually speaking, there are all sorts of things you're doing battle with all the time. Not just the things around you. If it was just the things around you, life would be pretty easy. It's all the stuff in your head, all the stuff that's tied up in your feelings and your emotions and just fighting your own flesh all the time. It's a constant battle, and it's a spiritual battle. And he tells them right off the bat as he's calling them, I urge you, going back to their identity as sojourners, or yours might say aliens, and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So he's basing this statement on their identity. He says, look, you guys are exiles. And what does he mean by that, by calling them exiles? He means more than one thing. What does he mean? Yes. Good. So, um, the two senses are they're exiles in that they were driven out from where they were living. They were dispersed. Uh, In fact, at the beginning of the letter, he talks about them being of the dispersion. Okay? They are exiles of the dispersion. They were physically, literally dispersed. But, Jerry said, the other thing, the spiritual reality is that they're walking around in this place that isn't their home, earth, earth itself is not our home as Christians. We're walking around here knowing that this isn't our final destination, and this isn't the ultimate place where we will enjoy God forever. You think of that first great statement of, I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism, 
the purpose of man is to know, know God and to enjoy Him forever. Or maybe it's Westminster. You can tell I'm, I'm not from a Presbyterian tradition. I don't have my catechisms in, in a row. But, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, the idea of to enjoy God forever. Now, of course, that starts when you're saved. But we have just this little blip in our lives from the moment we're born again until we die. The forever aspect, the majority of this enjoying God aspect is after death, in the presence of God, whether that's in heaven, whether that's here on, on a redeemed planet, a regenerated planet, it's not that this place is our home. This place is just a, a layover, a really quick layover, because our final destination is much more beautiful than this fallen planet. It's going to be a sinless existence in the presence of God. So we're exiles here in the presence of sin in a fallen world. And what he calls them to do in light of their identity as exiles is to abstain from fleshly lusts. Yours might say that, um, ESV again says passions of the flesh, to abstain from the desires of the flesh. Now, what's interesting about what he's calling them to do here is he's not just saying stop sinning. Now, that's one of my favorite pieces of biblical counseling to give people. Stop sinning. <laughs> it's that easy, right? Yeah, people have their issue and they're struggling. Okay, here it is. Stop sinning. Maybe you saw that there's an old, um, oh, is it Bob Newhart or Bob Hope? I can't remember who it is, which one it is. Those are very different people, aren't they? I think it's Bob Hope. That was a Bob. It was a funny Bob. Uh, he did a sketch where he was a counselor and the woman comes in and she's you know, laying out all of her uh, problems and just giving long explanations for everything. And he says, okay, it was Newhart? Okay. Yes. He says, okay, here it is. I want you to write this down. You know, get out your pen. Stop it. Stop it. Okay. Just stop it. Uh, well, Peter's not just saying that, okay? He's, he's giving us uh, something that's much deeper, really. He says that we are to abstain not just from sin, but from the passions or the desires or the lusts that come with the flesh. So, even the the inside, the inner inklings and desires to want to rebel against God, to abstain from those things. And I want you to keep your finger here, but turn back to Romans 13. And we're going to turn to Romans 13 again later, so maybe you can bookmark it or something. But Romans 13, verse 14, gives a very similar sentiment. Just the one verse, Romans 13, 14. Hi. Welcome. Good to see you. You missed all the singing. <laughs> okay, Romans 13, 14. Let's just look at that one verse, the last verse of the chapter. Paul writes to this church, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then here's this wild imperative, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And this is similar, of course, to James 1 also that talks about where sin comes from, that we are, there's something inside that's stirred up because of our flesh. Sin is born out of that. God doesn't cause us to sin, and we can't always just say, well, the devil made me do it, right? In fact, you can very rarely say that. But what happens is there's these desires that exist still because we are in this body of death. We're still in the flesh, and we have these desires that pop up. And Paul writes here, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, reject those desires. And Peter 
perhaps even more strongly says, abstain from those passions, abstain from those desires. Those desires are to be squelched, to be fought against. Those desires are to be eradicated. We are not to entertain the beckoning of sinful desires in our flesh. Because we're going to have those things pop up. We're going to have thoughts pop up. We're going to have a little feeling pop up. Don't entertain it. Abstain from them. Don't entertain the beckoning of sinful desire. And that's really always at hand. And what's implied here, as Peter writes to Christians and Paul writing to Christians, is that you're able to do this. By way of the command, as a Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped with the Word of God, you are able to do this. You are able to abstain. Now, I'm not saying you're able to live perfectly, because you won't live perfectly. Many people have tried, and many people have failed. However, with each and every situation you're presented with, you have been equipped by God with all that you need to speak truth into your situation and to fight sin adequately and to fight those desires adequately. Every situation. What, what does it say in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I believe it is? We'll get to it soon in the sermon series. Anybody know that verse? No temptation, what? I give you a really long verse to say all at the same time. Sorry about that. Uh, yes, no, no temptation has come to you except that which is common to man, right? And then what does it go on to say? You can just paraphrase. What's the big truth that follows that? Yes, there you go. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And there's a way of escape. Very good. You guys know that verse. Awesome. Good job. Uh, now we just need to get on the same translation and say it all with the same cadence. Uh, that'd be great. <clears throat> but yeah, I, we have a way of escape every time. There aren't some desires where, well, there's nothing you can do about those desires. You're just stuck with them. You, God hasn't given you what you need. You're just stuck with them. That's not true. And this is controversial in our day, to say that we don't have to listen to our feelings, to say that we can actually work against the lust of the flesh, that we can have, if I can even say it, victory over the desires of the flesh. It's controversial to say that in some circles, especially when it comes to sins like homosexuality, things of that nature. Many people are counseled and told, no, nothing you can do about those desires. Is that what the Scriptures are teaching us? No. The Scriptures say we are able to make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. Here in 1 Peter 2, we are able to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Again, not just the action, but the passions, the desires that are aroused before the action. So we have to recognize that Scripture teaches this because we have a new nature. We're new. We're born again. We're equipped. And as we live in this world where we really are aliens and exiles, the world should feel more and more foreign to us as we grow in Christ. And as God is faithful to reveal sin in us and work in us and grow us and conform, conform us to the image of Christ, as all of this is happening in our lives, knowing that we're aliens here, the world should start feeling more and more alien to us as God grows us in holiness and we're able to continually make no provision for the flesh by His power working through us. Okay? And again, I'm not saying that means you're perfect, because we know this, when you sin, 
you have an advocate with the Father, right? And we repent and we go back to God through Jesus Christ and we're renewed day by day because we fail every day. But the, but the goal is set before us, make no provision for the flesh. And that's something that we can do as Christians. So thoughts on that, thoughts or questions on that before we get into the reasons why we're called to do this. Okay, good. Well, let's talk about why, why are we called to abstain from these passions of the flesh? Well, first, we see in our text this evening that these things are enlisted to do battle with your soul. You see this in uh, the end of verse 11, that these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. These passions of the flesh desire to make you weak and ineffective. These passions of the flesh squander your growth, the desires, the lusts of sin really do harm you spiritually. The word there for wage war is just one word in the Greek, and it means to enlist as a soldier. These passions have enlisted. They've joined the army against you. They've signed up. They've been commissioned against you. And all these things are around us, within us, and they're trying to do harm to us. Peter's not the only one who spoke this way about the spiritual battle. James and Paul both wrote this way too, saying they will, these desires are set against you. They're at war. You're in battle. And it goes both ways. It's not just that they're against us, but we're against them. We are against the lust of the flesh as Christians. Our identity as Christians pits us against these sins, these sins that are associated with an earthly mind. And they're associated with spiritual harm, these things that cause us or beckon us to rebel against God. So when we embrace, <clears throat> when we embrace the desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, the lusts of sin, we're harming our spiritual growth and we're impacting our relationships too. And that's where Peter, again, is going with all this, our relationship with the government, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with uh, with everybody, is affected as we embrace the fallen desires of the flesh. These, these sins, whatever they are, whatever besetting sins that are happening in our lives, they cause spiritual rot. You are a fruit tree. Jesus used this analogy. Paul used this analogy. You're a fruit tree. You've been newly planted. You're going to bear fruit because of God working in you. He caused you to be born again. He's living inside of you. He's bringing about fruit. But sin causes rot from the inside. We had a couple um, trees right outside the auditorium here that died within the last couple of years. They've been replaced. But with one of the trees, we, we think we had a boar. And you know those little, little things, they get inside of a tree and they work their way through the trunk, gobbling things up and ruining everything. And from the inside out, the whole tree dies. And you think of the orchard that's over here on the other side of the parking lot. Just think if there was a swarm of those bugs that just got into those trees and how that would impact the farmer because those trees wouldn't be able to produce any good fruit. They would rot and they would die. And borers, what's interesting too, is that it seems like those bugs especially find the most vulnerable trees, meaning those that are new, that aren't strong, that haven't been around for a while to lay down good roots and hold firm, or ones that have had some kind of a wound that have an open hole or something that they can get into. 
And it's really true for Christians too, those who are new Christians, infants in Christ, toddlers in Christ, those who have some sort of a wound, who have, have dealt with something and spiritually have been wounded. You're just so much more susceptible to this, aren't you? Now, we're all susceptible, but especially those in, in those situations are more susceptible. And so we have to be on our guard knowing that the fruit that God is bringing about through us can be stifled because of embracing sin, embracing the desires of the flesh. They prevent fruit. They cancel out fruit. Sometimes it's not just that they prevent fruit, but especially if you're at a place of influence, you've got some, some sort of high standing with some people, you've had fruit in your life that the Lord has brought through, and then afterwards, because you've embraced the desires of the flesh and you've had some sort of public failing, now it's canceled out a lot of that fruit. So we have to just be so careful. We know this as parents with our kids. Good things happen happening with kids. You had good times, good lessons, good instruction, laughter, and all those things. And then later on in the relationship, perhaps things fall apart, and perhaps it's your fault for embracing a sinful approach to your child. And all those good things, all those things that happen are canceled out because of that spiritual battle that you've not fought in, that you've lost, because you gave in to the sinful desires of the flesh. We have to be so careful, and we have to lean on God's power through this continually. You're not doing battle on your own. You have God in you, and you have God's people around you. And as soon as we start rejecting these things that God has equipped us with in His Word, then we're going to start losing the battle. We're going to lose the battle. So first is that the first reason as to why we abstain from fleshly lusts is because they do battle with our soul. We need to stay spiritually strong. We need to bear fruit for God's glory. But secondly, and this, this is one that perhaps you wouldn't think of right off the bat, is that our reputation among the Gentiles should not be stained with evil. Look down at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is interesting. So, first reason, why should you abstain from fleshly lust? To guard your own soul. Secondly, though, because the world is watching. <laughs> interesting. Now, the reason I find this so interesting and now, maybe you guys can provide some feedback here, is because a lot of times we sort of take the position, and rightly so, who cares what the world thinks? Because here you are on a Wednesday night making time out of your busy schedules to come to a fellowship where you're studying the Bible, and the world says, that's stupid. <laughs> yeah, they've got TV shows to watch. They've got stuff they can do at home, yada, yada, yada. Who cares what the world thinks, right, in a situation like that? But now, when it comes to this... Peter's using the world is watching as one of the reasons as to why we should keep our conduct honorable. Give me some thoughts as to why you think that is. And what is so fascinating about that is even though they're lost and dead in sin, they still recognize hypocrisy and hate it, at least in other people, <laughs> maybe not in themselves. But that, isn't that interesting? 
even though they don't know the Lord, even though they haven't been born again, they can still tell if you're a con. And that can do damage, major damage, not just to your reputation with them, but for the Lord's reputation, right? Because here we are as ambassadors for Christ. So that's a, yeah, it is a very interesting thing. I got a quote here from Karen Jobes. I thought she phrased this so well. She said, the challenge Peter presents to the thoughtful Christian is to live by the good values of society that are consistent with Christian values and to reject those that are not, thereby maintaining one's distinctive Christian identity. She goes on to say, certainly works of public benefaction, that's a fun word, public good, (laughs) certainly works of public good cannot be excluded from Peter's idea of doing good within the civic sphere for those Christians who have the resources and standing to do so. And she quotes Jeremiah. She says, this, this thought follows Jeremiah's instructions. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. So I thought that was a good tie-in. As Christians, we are to go out and do good to all, to seek the welfare of the city, and also to maintain those relationships by not being hypocrites, not going to church and then embezzling at our jobs, right? (laughs) Not um, being Mr. Christian, carrying a Bible even uh, with you when you walk into work and then blowing up and cursing someone out and causing them harm. Um, Keep your conduct good among the Gentiles. Carrie. Yeah. Yeah, and, th- and that's exactly the point that Peter makes here. He goes on, you know, to say, after he says, keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this, of course, is very similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Same idea. Yep, same idea. Yes, Lizzie. Right, so there are a couple of different ways to think, think about it. We don't know because Peter doesn't explain in detail. So but there are a couple of ways you can think about it. One can mean the day of judgment. So it could mean at the, at the day when people are judged before the Lord and um, that those people would be saved and on that day glorify Him because they were saved by witnessing Christians' good deeds and coming to know the gospel. Though the other interpretation is anytime God... Um, basically confronts them in their life. So not necessarily the last judgment, but even in this life, as uh, God confronts them in this life, that they would bow the knee and that they would believe because of their association with Christians who have lived out the gospel before them. So I, I tend to think it's probably the first one, but he doesn't go into detail. So those are the two main interpretations. Okay? And as we think about <clears throat> having our good, our conduct... Um, honorable among the Gentiles, I thought of this illustration. And Logan, I might step on your toes here, okay? Metaphorically, I'm going I'm to stay over here with my feet, but metaphorically, I might step on your toes. Um, when you think of Amish and Mennonite, what are some of the first things that come to your mind in a positive sense? <laughs> okay, all right. Um, not the direction I was wanting to take it, but okay, yeah. Uh, 
Okay, heart. Say, say that again. Okay, so there's a, a strong faith there. Melissa says hardworking. Okay, good. They're organized and neat. Yes. Friendly and conservative. Okay, good, good, good. These are all good things. Now, what are some of the negative things? You can't talk, Logan. What are some of the negative things when you think Amish and Mennonite? What are some of the things that's like, ooh, I don't know about that? Okay. And I'm just going to take that one because that's the only, that's the point I wanted. So <laughs> uh, we don't need to bash on them beyond that. Okay. Yeah, there, there is a separation that they've established. So here in just a little over a week, Melissa and I and the kids will be back in Missouri and <clears throat> um, Pettis County, Missouri. There are a lot of Holderman Mennonites there. Or no, that, Holderman are in uh, Kansas. I don't know what flavor of Mennonite we have in Missouri, but... Um, will be among many of them, and they are all those positive things we said. But they are so separate that you can hardly get to know them. And that is one of the uh, cornerstones, really, of how they go about living their life is remaining separate. Now, what Peter is calling us to do are all those positive things that we listed off, all those positive things. But instead of being separate, having all those positive things mixed in with the world, not that we're mixing with the world, but that we're in the world. We're not of the world, we're in the world. We're not drawing lines and saying, okay, we need to stay on this side because the world's on that side. We're actually going out there and mingling in some extreme ways. Um, so that's the idea, is that we take this good conduct, which many Amish and Mennonites can show us up on in a lot of ways, right? Because they are dedicated people, very faithful people. But then we need to take that conduct out into the public square. And Paul's been talking about this in 1 Corinthians as we've been studying it, becoming all things to all people. He was taking his faith, he was taking these good deeds and packaging them in such a way that he could gain a hearing with the world by going out and mingling with people. And that takes bravery, takes some courage to do that. Uh, because especially if you get saved later in life where you've been out in the world, then you come out of the world, it's like, eh, I don't want to. Some of us kind of get that feeling where it's like, I don't want to go back. Well, you're in the world still. While you're here, keep mingling and take the gospel with you. Melissa, then Carrie. Yeah, well, those are tough questions, and they're gonna, the answer is going to be different for everybody. So that's the first thing to recognize. Um, because there are some people at some stages in their life, particular, particularly if they're young moms with multiple children, uh, who are just going to be busy, <laughs> okay, at home, and keeping up with home life and church life and everything else. So that's, and, and you realize that's your priority, because you, you lose, your, your first priority in evangelism is your own children, your own home, right? You lose your home, what are you doing, okay? So your home is first. Um, but beyond that, there are creative ways to get involved, um, and just the answer is going to be different. And so the best thing that I think we can do is, number one, never be um, satisfied in a holy sense, okay? I don't want you to make this into like a workspace religion in your own mind, but have a holy discontentment with that. Always want to reach more people, right? That, that, that's a good heart to have, is to want to always reach more people. And 
with that heart, then just look at some different ways that you could get into the community and get counsel from God's people and do what you can. Do what you can with what you have. It's one of the quotes I have above my desk. So, yeah. Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sabbatical from being around all those worldly people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, again, that that's going to be different for everybody. You kind of get the sense when you read about Paul and his journeys that he never got tired of that, right? He just seems like the uh, model extrovert, just never got tired of people. But there were times, though, in his life where he despaired. He called out to the Lord. And uh, he got his quiet time in jail. <laughs> so go make more trouble and get thrown in the slammer. That's the answer. No. Uh, but yeah, right. Very good. Yes, Jesus withdrew to be alone. And, um, and that's very important. So, you, so you, it starts with an awareness of, am I getting worn down spiritually? Am I being stifled by my concerns with the world that I need to kind of reset, refresh, and then go at it again, and that's totally good and fine. Just like, you know, a, a pastor needs a sabbatical every now and then from the ministry, uh, I think all Christians need some sort of a break from whatever their particular ministries are from time to time, because we all are prone to being burnt out. You're burnt out from your kid? I guess. <laughs> I can't help you with that one, Gary. <laughs> They're not Christian influences. No. And that's, I mean, just fact of the matter. And that doesn't make them the scum of the earth. That doesn't make them, like, the most evil people we've ever met. But, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, they're, they're not Christian influences. And so we have to be careful. All believers have to be careful. Who is influencing us the most? And uh, if you make a list of, okay, here are my top five influencers in my life, and four or five of them aren't Christians, that's not good. That's not good. And it's not that we want to build an echo chamber around us and only hear from Christians. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we need each other. We need the fellowship. God put us in a family, and that's where we get our encouragement, our edification, all those things. And so, again, the answer is going to be different for everybody. But we just have to, have to look, step back and look and get counsel from God's people and say, what do you think about this? And Maybe just change course a little bit. That's all life is, really. It's just stepping back, measuring things, and readjusting. You know that, right, Jerry? Remeasure and adjust? <laughs> What's your name? Edith. Edith. Okay, very good. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we go back to uh, Psalm 1. Um, Blessed is the man who, and goes through and lists different things, walks not in the way of sinners, sits not in the seat of scoffers, that sort of thing. Uh, but he's firmly planted like a tree by, by water. We need to be firmly planted in the Lord and be constantly getting from his people, from his word, from his spirit. And uh, if, we, if we start making <clears throat> our way of life being one of uh, being influenced by the world, we will, we will experience failure. We will. Um, 
A couple things before we move on to the next section here. First is that he does use the word Gentiles in verse 12, and that's interesting because we're not Jews. (laughs) Did you notice that? Did you see that in the text? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, wait a second. We're not Jewish. Well, this is one of the places in the New Testament where Gentiles refers to non-Christians. That Paul did it a couple times, and here we see Peter doing that. Okay, Um, just an interesting note. And it's also interesting that he says, um, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that if they speak against you as evildoers. It doesn't say that. What does it say? When, when they speak against you and slander you. Not an if, but a when. Peter was assuming that this was going to happen to them. (laughs) Uh, Just like Jesus did when he spoke to his disciples and said that he was persecuted, therefore they will be persecuted. So we, we recognize they're going to act this way toward us as unbelievers. However, our mission in life stays the same. Our conduct remains the same. And we just keep living an honorable life before them because God will use that. By our good living, unbelievers can be convicted of their own hypocrisy. By our good living, unbelievers can come to know the Lord. This is lifestyle evangelism, where you just take the gospel with you wherever you go. And I know lifestyle evangelism can mean some goofy things. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about living your life with Jesus shining through you, because that's what He does and seeking to make it your aim to keep your conduct honorable so that God would use your conduct to convict them, okay? So that's, we spent more time on that than I thought we would. The Christian life is a constant spiritual battle. But secondly, our good behavior is a testimony before lost rulers. Uh, Let's look at this again, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by Him, sent by the emperor, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the first thing we see here is that it is good to submit to human institutions. And that is just enough to trip some of us up. (laughs) But here it is. So you got to accept this. This is the teaching of Scripture. Embrace it. Don't run away from it. It is good to embrace the submission to human institutions. That's the imperative, verse 13, be subject to every human institution. Uh, To submit means to recognize that someone has a position of authority and that you are to obey them. Um, Again, that can be a tough pill to swallow, but this this is what the Lord has laid out for us. Someone's got authority from the Lord, it's good for you to obey them and to submit. It's... You recognize their position of authority, therefore you submit to them. And this idea of submission comes up in the different relationships that Peter hits throughout the letter too. It's not just uh, the idea of keep your conduct honorable for the sake of your relationships. It's also submit to your authorities in these different relationships because that's how you live for the Lord in them. Well, verse was what? I'm in... Two. Yeah, that'll make a difference. So, the understanding that we have here is obey except when you're commanded to sin, right? 
That is always the, the exception in the New Testament. We see it in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter and John don't preach about Jesus. What did they do? They preached about Jesus, right? So they didn't obey because it would have been sin for them to, okay, just refuse. I'll just refuse Jesus then because I have to obey the government. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches obey except for when you're called to sin. Now, in our day and age, in our particular culture, that really, uh, it's a really short list of the ways you've been commanded to sin by our government. Can you think of any ways that you've been commanded to sin by our government? Okay, yep. So that, so that could be a case where the, a government might command that you lie about who someone is. Okay. Go ahead, Diana. Right, yeah. Yes, and it's, it's not gotten to the point of communist China yet where they actually command you to kill your child, but it uh, could be one day. If we were living in China, there would be a lot longer of a list of ways we've been commanded to sin, right? So we need to be thankful that we live here and that America still is what it is. It still is exceptional in light of the other nations in the world. So we, we, a, lot of, a lot of ways we need to chill out. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying check out, I'm saying a lot of ways we need to chill out, um, and we need to recognize that the governments are there by God's doing. The people in positions of power are there by God's doing. I'm not saying that they're examples of Christian living. I'm not saying that they do anything good even. I'm just saying, look, they're there because God put them there. Carrie, I'm surprised you would have any thoughts on this, but go ahead. Wow, okay. Coming out swinging. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some conflating of issues that you just made there. If someone, if, if you could lose your job for being a Christian, that's a private ownership issue. That's not a government issue right now. Um, you know, someone owns a private business and they say, oh, you're a Christian, now you're fired. Well, that's the right to do so. No, good, good. But, but it, we could come to the point where the government, federal, or whoever comes along and says, look, um, if you believe this or if you refuse to do this or whatever, then you're not going to be eligible for employment or whatever. That could be coming. So we need to be uh, vigilant. We need to be alert. The Bible tells us constantly to be alert. So I'm not saying fall asleep, but I'm saying we're not China yet either. We're, and we're certainly not what Peter was living in. Because as Peter writes this, and let's just jump to verse 17 real quick, where he says, honor the emperor. And the same one he says to be submissive to back in verse 13. So be submissive, be subject to the emperor. The emperor at Peter's time was Nero. Do you know who killed Peter? Nero. And Peter's saying, honor him. Yes. So, that should put things in a little bit of perspective for us, okay? Um, we aren't living in that, and Peter had that view while he was living in that. It's pretty remarkable. Lizzie, did you have a thought too? Afterwards, after, after. We'll talk about it after.
Yeah. Like, like Peter's government. You do what Peter says. Be submissive to them and honor them. Yeah. Don't sin. But be subject to them and honor them. There you go. Now, that is a huge conversation with a lot of considerations, a ton of considerations, because it, in every situation, is going to be different. I mean, we'd have to go back and look at an example like um, Boston Massacre type situation. Okay, were they right? Were they wrong? The Revolutionary War itself, was it right or was it wrong? Okay, huge conversation we'd have to have otherwise. Go ahead. You, you saw I looked at the clock before I looked at you. Okay, very good. <laughs> Yes. You exercise exercise all the rights and freedoms you got. Yeah. Yep. 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 Again, I said chill out, not check out. So we, because a lot of times you talk to a conservative, and you start, it makes it sound like we're living under Nero. We're not living under Nero. Chill out, in that regard. But yes, we want to push for a Christian cause. Yet, if we're doing that while living hypocritically, if we're pushing for a Christian cause while not keeping our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, what are you doing? If you're, if you're out there barking for what you think is a great cause, and it might be, but you're not involved in a church fellowship, you don't, you're not serving, you're not taking the gospel and evangelism out to the workplace, you're not involved in the community in a way that helps people in the name of Christ, what are you doing? You're pushing a political agenda of what you're doing. And I'm not going to sit here and say that's great. Now, if you do that in the name of Christ, and it's the, the gospel that's motivating you and not just politics, I'm all for it. Go do it. But keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, okay? I don't go to his church. Well, I don't do anything. A lot of Christians say a lot of things that I wouldn't say. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to make a public announcement every time and say, oh, I disagree with him. Whatever, you know. I, he, I don't go to his church. He doesn't represent me. He's just a, a pastor who says things sometimes. So, just like I am. What does John MacArthur do when I say this, this, this? He's, he's not my leader. He's not my idol. So he says what he says. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if what Peter's doing, and I'll just, I guess I'll just finish with this because we just got too much left and not enough time. Um, what Peter's doing in this chapter, starting really in this section, is he's relating the Christian's experience of persecution and suffering to Jesus's. And this is going to be really explicit at the end of the chapter as he talks about uh, suffering as Jesus suffered. But notice that he says emperors or kings there in verse 13, and then in verse 14 he talks about governors. Kings and governors were different people. Kings were like Herod, who had total unilateral authority. These were, were men who didn't have to get approval from a committee or whatever before they could vote. They had full unilateral reign. And of course, in Peter's day, that was Nero. Nero. 
And then there were governors, and those governors were sent by the emperors or sent by the kings, uh, like Pilate. Pilate was a governor, and they oversaw a particular region. And so kings were a lot more inaccessible to just the regular person than perhaps governors were or even the people under them. But here Peter is bringing up the idea of kings and governors, and you think about Jesus' experience and Jesus uh, having his encounters with King Herod and with Pilate, who was called a governor. Um, and he's, I really think he's drawing a parallel and in getting into their minds that they are to live through this life and suffer through this life as Jesus did, to look to Him as the example. Uh, the very last verse of this chapter, verse 25, Peter tells them, "'You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls.'" So even as we suffer under a wicked and cruel government, we are to do it as Jesus did. Because he, he gave us a great example of that, didn't He, in the Gospels. We have that recorded for us. And that is how we are to live uh, as we experience persecution from a government. And I want us to finish with Romans 13. I told you we'd go back there. And so let's look. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> the reason why we can suffer such persecution from a government with great confidence, not wigging out, but being able to be relaxed, is because we do recognize the governments were established by God Himself. So let's have someone read verses uh, 1 to 7, Romans 13, 1 to 7. Who can read it? Okay, go ahead. All right, so we learn in this passage, God establishes the rulers, so we need to obey them. And this is because God is capital A authority, isn't He? The only capital A authority. He has life in Himself. He's the creator of all things. He alone holds authority. But what He does is He then gives authority as a stewardship to human institutions. Whether that's a government or um, a husband who's the head of his home or parents over their children, he, in a variety of ways, he establishes a stewardship of authority. And what we're talking about in 1 Peter and Romans 13 is he gives a stewardship of authority to the rulers. And their calling as a government is to uphold God's standards in the culture. The people that they oversee, the government is supposed to uphold God's standards because he's the authority. He's the one who says what's right and what's wrong, and they are to appeal to God's Word. Now, they're not always that way, are they? <laughs> they're rarely that way, aren't they? Um, we live in a country where we sing, you know, God bless America, um, or, you know, all these songs that invoke the name of God, but, uh, you know, as Carrie was mentioning earlier, it's like we're not even allowed to to talk about it, though. We can sing about it in a song that we've sung for a long time, but if we're going to talk about it in a conversation, you just need to watch where you go, okay? Because even though we recognize that God has been kinder to America than any other country on the face of the planet, we better not thank Him for it, right? That's kind of the sentiment that we get in the, uh, in the culture right now and from our government. <clears throat> but um, the idea is still for us to submit to government because God has instituted them, 
And as long as they're not commanding us to sin, whatever their command is, we obey. We follow. And that is just wild to think about. (laughs) Because there are some implications to that. You know, we just uh, went through a whole year plus of mask mandate stuff. And what about that? Is that sin? The government's saying that you have to wear a mask and then you don't do it? Okay, well, are you... Where do you land on that? And some Christians saying, look, it's a Romans 13 issue or a 1 Peter 2 issue. You just obey. And other Christians saying, no, look, there's a, there's a, a deeper thing that's going on, and, and they're using this to incrementally take away rights, blah, blah, blah. Okay, which one is right? Well, these are big conversations. But we have to start from the position of the Bible clearly teaches, obey them unless they tell you to sin. If you're going to reject that notion, you're rejecting Scripture. It's there in multiple places. So you have to accept that. And remember, Peter's recipients of the letter, they were dispersed by the rulers. They were kicked out of their hometown. They were sent away to a a land they weren't from. And they're told, be subject to them. That's, it's pretty heavy stuff. And just because the rulers are wicked, that doesn't change our calling to live holy lives as we are subject to them. Andy. It's okay. Okay, who can who can answer this question? Who are the recipients of Peter's letter? Christians. And they they are in Asia Minor. So they were from likely from Rome. Yes. And yeah, they're Christians. Good. Logan Yes. But it's the, it's the same thing when a husband is sinning against his wife. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, and there are some of us who are more wired to pay attention to authority figures and, and seek to recognize and honor that. There are others who are wired to just rebel against everybody, no matter who they are. Um, you know, I, I uh, have done the Myers-Briggs personality test, and I'm an ESTJ, which you're supposed to have more of a proclivity to recognizing authority structures and obeying or whatever. Um, whatever. Uh, I think it's really for all Christians as they look at the world around them to see how God has ordered the world around them and has taken His capital A authority and administered it through a stewardship to lesser magistrates or ministers or however we want to say it. Um, We are to recognize that, that there's authority there from God. Now, again, applications, the playing out of all this, it can get sticky in a hurry, but let's just all agree we are to obey unless we're told to sin. Applications get sticky. <laughs> yes, it does. In first it, well, it says both. Both. First statement is honor all people. Last statement is honor the emperor. Yeah. Carrie, then Lizzie, we are one minute past time. Go quick.
He was a heretic. He, no, he wasn't. He, he, he rejected the deity of Christ. Yeah, I did. But there was a, there was a, there was a perceived, there was a perceived moral superiority. I'm sure. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yes, and that's, yeah. And he didn't burn down a target while he was, <laughs> and he, he wasn't in it for the flat screen TV, so, yeah. Lizzie. We respect, we honor the emperor regardless of his, yeah, we, we honor the emperor, yes. Well, the difference is he's claiming the name of Christ. If you're going to claim the name of Christ and then be a heretic and live in a way that your conduct is not honorable among the Gentiles, you should be called out. And in for everybody, even for the, uh, the president or governor or whoever, who we are to honor, even though they're lost, we can honor them while calling them to repentance. We, we can honor all of our neighbors while recognizing they're going to hell and they need to repent. And we can speak to them strongly and urge them to repent while still honoring them. It's a both and. It's a both and. Honor doesn't mean just roll over and say, oh, well, I, I'm just going to be okay with everything that's happening because who am I to say anything? No, we have, we have truth from God that we are to take with us into the culture and confront the culture while still honoring those authority structures God has established. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You talk, you speak truth. Speak truth. Yeah. Well, now we're back to Mennonites. So, uh, uh, who, who don't make any oaths uh, and, see, and see a pledge of allegiance as an oath. Yeah, again, applications can get sticky. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to let the prisoners go. <laughs> okay. Yes. And then we, we can catch up after. Okay. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for how there is just endless application from your word. We ask that you'd give us wisdom as we think through these things, that we would uh, never take a position that opposes your word, uh, and that we would live out with confidence, what it is that you lay on our hearts as we uh, seek counsel from one another and seek to understand more about how you would have us to live in a way that advances the gospel. Give us uh, just a sweet week, uh, the days that are left of this week, that we would represent you well in the culture, that our lights would shine brightly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.